This morning here in Worship Center, or whether you're listening online, I want to ask you the question, am I living life to the fullest? Am I living life to the fullest? We know in, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly or you might have it to the fullest. And so today, as we conclude our awe series, I think I'm asking that question because I think our, this, the, the final message today really speaks to that question. Am I? Am I living life to the fullest? We're going to answer it by looking at a New Testament passage uh, and the Old Testament and an Old Testament passage and seeing how it connects to our life today. And those two passages connect to two very historical, significant events in history that have to do with covenants. Today we live in what is known as the New Covenant. Previously there was an Old Covenant. And that's what we've been looking at over the last number of weeks here at Central Heights as we've investigated Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34. It's during the time period when the old covenant was given to God's people. And I think by looking at the old, it helps us to more appreciate and to more live rightly in the new covenant that God's given to us. So uh, if you don't know me, my name's Tim, and I'm a pastor, and uh, just, you know, a pastor uh, has a tool of his trade, just like a hockey player has skates, a baker has an oven, a pastor has a Bible program on his computer. And uh, I'm ashamed to tell you and confess this morning, but my Bible program was really old on my computer. I looked at the date that it was in co- uh, copyrighted or whatever, and it was 2006. 2006, can you imagine, do you think there's any changes or any upgrades that that company has made to their Bible program over the last 13 years? Well, I finally, you know, said, okay, enough's enough. Um, it's, let's do it. Let's spend the money. Let's get a better upgraded program. And I got to say, as you begin to look at what's available, where have I been? Um, the limitations of my old have helped me to so much more appreciate what I now have, even though there's so much more of that new to be investigated for me. When we think about the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, that's the first half of the book of the Bible, how it's sort of divided up, Old Testament, New Testament. When we look at the Old Covenant, Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34, if you want to go there already, just to give you a little background about how this Old Covenant came about. So God looked down on people who were slaves in the nation of Egypt Um, They were crying out to God, and God said, okay, I'm going to come rescue them. They were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom God had revealed himself to. And after 400 years of slavery, God comes, and he delivers them through a series of plagues. So if you can imagine today, if if the Fraser River turned blood red, I think that would probably make the news. And so Plagues like that happen where the Nile turns to blood or there's a plague of frogs as another example where there's frogs everywhere. It's like if you looked at the ground, the ground would be moving because there would be frogs on it. Isn't that creepy? Isn't that Halloweenish creepy? Yeah. And imagine you got frogs on your kitchen counters. Those of, those of you women who love to have it clean and those of you men who cook and you, you open up your frying pan, there's a frog in it. You go to sleep at night and the frogs are in your bed covers. Like it just would have been absolutely grotesque. God used the these plagues, though, and he leveraged it to, to set his people free. So Egypt would say, okay, you can go. But also to leverage the fact that not just Israel, but all the world heard about this if they didn't experience it. To know that there is a God who is, who is glorious and beyond comparison. 
And this glorious and beyond comparison God takes the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, through a Red Sea on dry land, another miracle. He brings them through the desert, feeds them, provides for them, brings them to the base of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And there his leader, Moses, is called up to the mountain. And for the second time, we won't get into why it didn't work the first time. For the second time, Moses is going to be called up to the mountain. But as part of a prelude to that, Moses has asked this audacious request. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God says, okay. Moses has seen a lot, but God calls him up to the mountain, and there God reveals himself to Moses, not fully, not completely, because no one can look at the full glory of God and still exist and keep breathing. It would have killed Moses, so God protects him, but reveals to Moses his glory through the revelation of his name. He proclaims his name to Moses. The God, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When you read those words, the Lord, the Lord there, that represents the personal name of God revealed to his people, Yahweh, Yahweh, meaning self-existent, eternally consistent. So God is, was, always will be eternally merciful, eternally gracious, eternally slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's forgiving, but he's also just. He is eternally that way. And as God reveals himself to Moses, he reestablishes a covenant with with Moses, through Moses, for between God and the people. And that is this glorious, beyond comparison God, by making a covenant, is saying, I am giving myself to you, and I want to be in a relationship where I'm committed to you, you're committed to me. Amazing. A God who is so other, so beyond us, would be willing to enter into covenant with people, the greater with the lesser. So Moses experiences this, and we read how he comes down from the mountain, from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And as he comes down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. In the beautiful presence of God, the glory of God shone on Moses, and it's like this afterglow. Moses comes down the mountain. The people see it. They they freak out. They're afraid of it. Moses veils himself to cover himself, and then he would speak to the people and then veil himself again. And every time he would meet with God, not just at Mount Sinai, at the place of meeting, he meets with God, and and then he has to veil himself as God's glory reflects off his face. Pretty amazing, huh? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that like out of this world, amazing, glorious so how does your and my relationship with God compare to that? How's, how does ours as a church, when you think of that kind of experience and all that, how does that compare to where we are, what we're experiencing? See, if we now go from Exodus chapter 34 and the Old Covenant, and we transition to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we're going to read about the New Covenant, We see that the writer who's talking about the New Covenant, the Apostle Paul, says what was experienced in the old is of no comparison to the world of the New Covenant, the potential that you and I have that we live in right now. 
The old was glorious. I mean, incredible. But its glory is, is, it pales in comparison to what Moses looked forward to, which came through Jesus Christ, which we today can live in. Amazing. Now we know this out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as a byproduct of Paul defending his ministry against other people who are criticizing him. And in that defense, he begins to talk about the new covenant. So we're going to pick it up just at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul writes this. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. In those days of non-instant communication, no email, no texting, um, letters of recommendation were important. If somebody was traveling and teaching or instructing, letters of recommendation would be important that people would know, oh yeah, these, these are reputable people. So Paul has been critiqued. He's planted a church in Corinth. He's gone from there, and there's people that have come behind him that are critiquing him that have, it seems, letters of recommendation which Paul never had, but Paul says to the Corinthian church, I want you to know you are my letter of recommendation. What God did in you when I was there, when I was among you, what happened to you is my letter of recommendation. You need to think about it because it had all very much to do with the new covenant. These new teachers or these critiques of Paul, it seems they taught that people needed to go back to the old program. 1400 A.D., that's the date of it. They needed to go back to that, and they needed to live by Moses and his commands and what he did. See, it's really hard to change a worldview, how you live your life. You think about it, for generation after generation after generation and generation, go on and on and on, for the, for the nation of Israel, they always lived by the old covenant, by God's way given to Moses, and, and they esteemed Moses, and they esteemed the way of, of that covenant that was given to them. That's how they were instructed. And so to change their worldview, I mean, that, that's like changing your whole identity of who you are. It's like if you've been a Flames fan your whole life and your dad was a Flames fan, your grandparents were Flames fan, and then you come to the West Coast and you realize there's a better team, there's a better way, and you change allegiance. I mean, that's, up, that, that's uprooting. We, we see that in politics, too, where, where people can have an allegiance to a political party. Grand, their grandfather did. Their father did. You know, you, they, it's in your genes. You're born that way. You can't change because that's a, that's a complete upheaval of, of a worldview that our identity is so wrapped around. So this is difficult. But Paul needs to do a comparison for the, the people who are reading this letter of the old and the new. They need to see how big the difference is between the two. It's like if you've ever gone shopping for an automobile. Uh, I don't know about you, you know, different models, whatever, you, you make a list. If I made a list of the vehicle I once owned and what I would look at buying today, I, would, I had 1972, I had a 1972 Datsun. And I don't know if any of you have seen these cars. There might be a few that still exist, but they're like just a square box. And so if I was to go shopping with that car in mind compared to uh, what I had, compared to a new, let's, 2019, let's say, Santa Fe, I mean, I, I do the check marks for the Datsun. It's got four wheels and not much more than that. <laughs> That's about it. 
Power windows? Like, what are power windows? No, you get your workout by turning those windows. Air conditioning, you, you turn those windows, you roll it down. Bluetooth was probably something you went to see the dentist for. It wasn't something that you, you know, was an advantage to you so you could drive hands-free. Like, the comparison would be ridiculous between the old and the new, and that's just in, like, a couple of decades, let alone hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So Paul does a, a, a checklist between the old and the new in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 here. Let's pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 3. God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So the old covenant he calls a covenant of the letter. The new is a covenant of the Spirit. The letter, the old, kills. But the Spirit gives life. Got it? So here's the old, the old covenant is, a, is, is a, a one that kills. It's a letter. This is of the Spirit. And it gives life. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was brought to an end. In other words, this was glorious. This was grace. To have an incomparable, glorious God enter into relationship with his people and show them how it would be possible to live in that relationship. That is grace and that is glorious. But it came to an end. Verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... It's what the old covenant did. It brought people into condemnation. The ministry of righteousness that happens in the new must far exceed it in glory. Do you get what he's getting at? Glory, more glory, far exceeding glory, surpassing glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. When you compare the two, it's almost like this is nothing. This is a 1972 Datsun. Can't remember anything good about it. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent have glory. If you read Paul, who wrote this elsewhere, he would remind people that the law was good. There was nothing wrong with the law. It was holy. The problem was with us. The problem is with God's people. The problem was they, they couldn't keep the law. They had a, they had a bent to, to stray, to waver away from God. It's like if you've ever bumped your car wheel on something on a big curb or something and it has gotten it off keel and then you drive that car and you want to go straight but it, it, it now has a different bent and it doesn't want to go straight. It wants to go on the ditch. It wants to veer right. And if you just let it on its own, that's what it's going to do. So you have to grip that steering wheel and you have to hold it straight because it wants to go offline. So it is with us. And it's the history of God's people constantly through prophets calling people back to, to get back in alignment with God. But them constantly getting off alignment does this sound familiar to you at all? Paul says there's 
something's better. Something better has happened in the new. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Paul says, this new covenant has brought a hope. God has addressed the misalignment. And to go back to it is like to, is like to put a veil back over your eyes that, that you cannot see. Every time, he says, people go back to legalism, it's like their hearts and their eyes are blinded. And yet, the Corinthian church want to do that. And I would say it's very easy for us to veer off course that way too. To go back. To go back to living by rules and stipulations. Defining our sense of self-worth with what we can do for how we've performed before God. And when we're performing well, thinking really good about ourselves and our relationship with God, and when we're not beating ourselves enough until we feel like we've punished ourselves enough. That's to go back to the old way. It's not what God intends. Or to look down on other people because you're in a place where, you know, you're performing pretty well. And you know what's required of you uh, in Christian circles to look good. You read your Bible. You, you go to church on a regular basis. You're part of a community group. You even serve uh, in, a, in a church function. And so, but you, it makes you feel good about yourself in your own self-righteousness. And so it's easy to judge other people and be condemning about them because they're just not performing quite the way you are. That's legalism. That's the old way. That's the law. And here's probably what I think is the most subtle way of living according to the law that, that I find in my own life. And that is just to live my life in my own strength is to live like the law. Just to try to please God in my own strength by gritting my teeth and making a great effort is to live like I'm under the law, is to live the old way because God came to fix my proclivity. He came to fix my bent that wants to take me into the ditch regardless of how hard I grab that steering wheel. And it happens in the new covenant through what Jesus Christ has done. My first telephone, or cell phone, cost me $2,500. And it was the size of a brick. Some of you may have seen a picture of the first cell phones that came out. They were like that big. I got a phone that um, you couldn't take with you. It was attached to my car because I got better reception by having an antenna at the back of my car. My phone's attached to the car. And I paid, I paid good coin for this phone because this phone could take three voice messages. That's right. Three voice messages. That's what this phone could do. Do you know how we've progressed over time? From that kind of phone to the smartphone, which are like computers, and they're, they've got a, you know, a camera, and you name it, the capabilities that they have. Wouldn't it be tragic if I stayed with my old phone? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? Knowing all that's available to me, and I chose to stay with that old phone. As Paul thinks about this new covenant, um, no doubt he's remembering some of the Old Testament prophets, and let's just look at one that talked about this day that would happen. Uh, Ezekiel prophesied, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes about their experience as a church and his experience as team leaders, and it's, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, the new covenant, the, the new way of relating to God is not just that Jesus Christ went to the cross, that he died, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. That is amazing. But there's more to the new covenant. It's not just about having your sins forgiven. It's about having a provision for you so that having been forgiven, you can now live in a way that God wants you to live in an abundant, full life. So Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then what does he do? He pours out his spirit on all flesh. As Peter quotes from Joel, this provision, a new heart, a bent, now not just to go off, off God's way, but a new bent to walk in the way of God. That's the provision of the new covenant, the new way. Paul writes, whenever our minds are, are turned to the law, it's like they're hardened. For to this day, he says in verse 14, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, and here's the, here's the choice we can make. Here's the option that we have. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When we look to Jesus and the provision that he's made at the cross and through his resurrection and his ascension and the pouring out of his spirit, a provision is made. The veil is removed and we enter into the life that God has intended for us and paid a great cost for us through his son, Jesus. Verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This, this work of, of, of the new covenant is very much about Jesus and what he's accomplished, but it's also very much about the Holy Spirit. And in Scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit does all kinds of things. As Jesus told us about him, he said the Spirit would lead us into truth. The Spirit would bring things to your remembrance. He said the Spirit will give you, give you power to be my witnesses. We read in, in Scripture, the Spirit gives us spiritual gifts, the ability to do things that we would not be able to do in our own strength, in our own way. The Spirit does all kinds of things that are good. I grew up in a fairly conservative home, and I can't really remember hearing a message about the Holy Spirit till late in my teens. But there was a point in my life when I began to, to wonder, what, what was it about the Spirit? And I needed to learn that the Holy Spirit is not just, not just the person of a select group within Christianity, but the Holy Spirit is for all. For all those who have their faith, their hope, their trust in Jesus. And that the Holy Spirit has come to, to equip us, but also to bring us into freedom. We don't have to be scared of the Holy Spirit. We need to welcome him. And the one thing that Paul wants to focus on that the Holy Spirit does in the new covenant is this. He wants to transform you 
from glory to glory. So, on Thanksgiving weekend, I invited all my family over to my house. They all came, and, and I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, I'll do the turkey this year. So, uh, that's a sermon illustration for another time. But I did the turkey. We ate. Nobody died. And then afterwards, we're playing games and hanging around. And, and my, I think one of my son-in-laws, a couple others, wanted to watch a little football later in the afternoon. I'm not with them. They're, they've got my TV on. They're watching football. And I, I get into the, the room, and I start watching with them. And I thought, something's not right about this picture. It doesn't look very good. Give me that clicker. So I took the power away from my son-in-law. And I realized they were watching the football game on the old standard, like, television, like, standard, whatever. I switched the channel, found out where the HD channel was, and it, I cannot, like, I can't, it's amazing the difference that there was in looking before and then after. This is the picture that Paul is getting at about what God wants to do in your life. Just like the progression of, of the images of reflection. So we started with radio, and people used to huddle around the radio to hear the news of what was going on in the world. And then it went to black and white, and people went, Ha! Huh, can you believe it? We can see things on this screen. And they'd huddle around that black and white screen. It was incredible. And if you move the antennas in the right position, you might get a clear picture in black and white. Isn't that amazing? And then came color. Wow, this is like real life. Flesh tones. I can't believe it. And then came HD, such precision. And then came 4K, and where's it going to end? That's a picture of what God wants to do in our lives. As he brings us back to the purpose that we are originally created for. This is the work of the Spirit. In the beginning, we were created to be image bearers of God. That when people saw us, we would reflect the glory of God. Today, under the new covenant, each one of us can go and be in the presence of God. We can behold him, as Paul writes here. We can behold him, and as we behold him, as we look at him, as we spend time in his presence, it says we are changed, we are transformed. It's the work of the Spirit to change us from glory to glory to glory. So that you reflect increasingly what God is like. That you were once merciful, but now you are way merciful, more merciful. You were once gracious. How are you gracious now? You were once patient, or maybe not quite. You've become patient. Because you're increasingly looking like the image of the God who is your Father. And you experience the abundance of what it is to live in His nature and character and people around you see you and go, what is going on to the glory of God? How does this happen? It happens by the work of the Holy Spirit, first of all. And I think we need, I think of three things that, that take place in my life to position my place where this can happen. First of all, it's just to acknowledge that I cannot live God's way in my own strength and that every day to acknowledge that God has given His Holy Spirit to make my transformation, make my life and its fullness possible, and to acknowledge the Holy Spirit, that I, I name him, talk to him, 
so that the Holy Spirit is not like the unnamed, unknown person in Christianity. Invite the Holy Spirit. So I acknowledge and then I ask. I could show you my journals, and I think I've mentioned this before, how many times I've prayed for myself and my family, my kids, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is God's provision for us under the new covenant, that we would be people marked by the Holy Spirit, that we're not doing things in our own flesh, in our own way, in our own struggles, but we are being empowered by God's Spirit to do things His way. We acknowledge, we ask And then we align ourselves. In this passage here, Paul says what we do is we behold. We behold the Lord. If you read a little further on into chapter 4, he talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of God. The light of Jesus. We behold Jesus. And we look at him in the scriptures and the story of God, of Jesus. We see him in the Old Testament. We see what he does in the gospels. We see how the apostles reflect on him. As they write about him, we behold Jesus our Lord. That's going to take some effort. It's going to take some intentionality. Moses had to climb up that mountain to Mount Sinai. We're going to have to do something. We're going to have to make space. We're going to have to push things aside. We're going to have to, I know this is radical, we're going to have to turn our phones off. And we're going to have to seek the Lord. As we align ourselves with God and we put ourselves in the position where his spirit can work and change us, transform us from glory to glory and you experience the abundance, the fullness of the life that he's always wanted for you and has made provision for you in what we call the new covenant. Father, I thank you for for loving us I thank you for loving us so much. You gave us Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us as orphans when Jesus ascended. But just like he said, you gave us another comforter, a person just like Jesus. You gave us the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to welcome him. We want to welcome him in this church family. We want to welcome him in our own individual lives. And we pray, God, that you would empower us to walk in ways that are in alignment with your truth, Lord, that we might be free and we might be full. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.